by not talking about giving, we reduce the amount of giving. G'day folks and welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. I'm your host, Luke Freeman, and today the tables have been turned as I'm being interviewed by Josh Ross, the CEO and co-founder of Humanitix, a ticketing platform that is set up as a charity so it can turn its profits into good. So without further ado, here's Josh interviewing me. Hi, I'm Josh Ross, co-founder of Humanitix, and with me today is Luke Freeman, executive director of Giving What We Can, an organization that helps people maximize their charitable impact. Giving What We Can was originally founded by two Oxford philosophers, Toby Ord and Will McCaskill. And Will McCaskill, in particular, is very well known for writing a book called Doing Good Better, which is probably the thought-leading book on effective altruism in the world today. And it's a great book if you're interested in how to use not just your money and resources, but also your time and career to maximize impact for the world. It's a must read. I met Luke through Global Shapers, which is a group of the World Economic Forum that is designed to give a voice to young people in their 20s, adults, but who typically aren't represented in global affairs. Uh, that's how Luke and I met, and he's got a really interesting background, starting, in my opinion, at school. Um, Luke, why don't you... Not to write off your first 15 years of life, but why <laughs> tell us a bit about how you kind of forged your career and, and got off the traditional path. Yeah. Um, well, it actually started even before the, that. I was, I was homeschooled uh, for the first seven years of my schooling life. And then when I went to school, I was fortunate enough that the New South Wales Institute of Sport kind of went by and kind of measured everyone up and got them to you know, jump and things like that. And uh, I ended up being uh, on the fast track for pretty high-level rowing. That threw a spanner in the works when trying to you know, finish my HSC and show up to classes at 7.30 and when I was you know, travelling and uh, rowing at a kind of state and national level. So I had to figure out, you know, what am I trying to do? Well, I want to get a degree. I, I want to go to university. I know that the benefits of that affords someone. And so I found out that technically I could enter as a mature age student just by uh, sitting entrance exams and doing some bridging courses. So at the end of grade 10, over the summer, I found myself starting university at the ripe old age of uh, 15. <laughs> and, and to fund my way through, yeah. And to fund my way through that, I had to be independent, which meant that I was working as a uh, freelance consultant doing uh, web design and development. So yeah, that was a interesting path, but it meant that I also had an in income fairly young and was uh, from quite a young age thinking about what I would do with that income. I, I remember being really shocked to realize that how much that I had relative to other people. Again, I was a middle-income family in, in you know, Australia, which doesn't seem like a lot. Dad was an academic, mum was a full-time parent. You know, we were often you know, fairly careful with our budget, cooked all the time at home, didn't go on a lot of holidays other than camping. But realising that there are some people who didn't have access to basic healthcare and education and that that was just purely due to kind of lack of circumstances, it really it drove me to make to do what I can to make a difference. I did a lot of things like when I was in school, like 40-hour famine, I did it, and then I ended up organising it for both my school and my church and quite involved with campaigns like Make Poverty History. So when I did enter university and you know, got involved with you know, things there, I was trying to seek out you know, how does the world really work? Like how do we solve some of these problems that we're facing? I decided before I let my expenses start to expand, as we typically do, I would try to make some form of giving commitment and when you decide to give away a decent portion of your income, it suddenly becomes really important where you're giving that. Like, if it's not just about the uh, kind of 
the giver and the, and the idea that you're giving away and you're trying to be selfless and, and things like that. But it's actually, you care about what happens with that money. Like, is it helping people? Like if I was giving money away and it was doing harm, that would be terrible. If I, if it was doing some good, that wouldn't, uh, that'd be okay. But really I wanted that sacrifice to be really worthwhile. And so that's when I discovered the early work of giving what we can and a charity evaluator called GiveWell. And that kind of led me down this path of learning a lot more about how to do the most good with our resources in general. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I like to start with the, you know, the, the more tricky topics. Some people out there are really anti-charity. It's kind of weird when you're in kind of these types of people, but I've definitely met a few and they think it sometimes does more harm than good. Luckily, it's a minority. I mean, all the major religions encourage giving some of the mandated. Most people you meet understand that a child who's dying at the age of one from cholera needs a handout, not a job. <laughs> but uh, yeah, really keen to understand what are the main arguments you come across giving and uh, how you tackle those in your role. You get different objections from different kind of worldviews. So there's some like evidentiary objections, which is, you know, not thinking that particular interventions work and some things don't, you know, some charity doesn't work. And that's why it's important to find stuff that, that really does. Sometimes there's, you know, philosophical questions around the progressive side of politics. It's crowding out what the services the government should be providing on the kind of more right side of politics. It might be the view that people should be uh, self-sufficient and that charity is a handout. So kind of on that first one, governments you know, can generally do a good job of providing services when people are able to speak for themselves. But if you're living in another country, you have very little ability to uh, influence the flow of capital to that country. And then you've got things like animals. Uh, they have very little voice for themselves and, and future generations. These are all going to be underrepresented by traditional you know, democratic government. So it'd be very surprising if our you know, governments were acting on behalf of the voices which aren't going to be heard. And that's a role that charity can play is you can say, look, I care about these voices which aren't being heard and don't have the ability to speak for themselves. So I want to put my money where my mouth is and, and really care about that. On the other side, you've got the kind of view that people should be self-sufficient and that you know, charity is handouts. And a lot of the time, some of the best charity is preventing terrible things from happening unnecessarily. <laughs> so that is things like neglected tropical diseases, intestinal worms or malaria and things like that, which are really preventing people to you know, get educated, to get jobs, to show up. And uh, because it's like, you know, with COVID at the moment, if you're sick and dying unnecessarily, or you're not able to go to work for fear of getting sick and things like that. This is just an impediment. And if you remove the impediment, people are able to help themselves a lot better. But removing impediments is one of the you know, things that you can do with charities. You can fund programs which remove impediments. And there are lots of these things which really help people to better help themselves and help communities to better help themselves. And so it's not teach a man to fish. It's, you know, st stop polluting the fishing pond. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to put it. I like that. Yeah, I've occasionally come across one that particularly sticks in my head, which is the, you know, self-made man type of rationale. And I've got to meet a lot of wealthy people just in where I was born in Sydney, but also in my ventures with Humanitics, raising philanthropic capital as a charity. Um, and the vast majority are incredibly generous. They recognize that they're in a position to give back and that they've made their fortune from a combination of luck, hard work, and a society that's conducive to it. You do meet 
people that take the view of, you know, my parents came here as immigrants with nothing. They they worked really hard to give me the education, and I've worked really hard and created this world for myself. And I'm a self-made human being, and I've always taken taken that with quite a bit of surprise because it's not hard to recognise that you don't choose. Your family, you don't choose that you weren't born addicted addicted to meth or alcohol or, you know, you don't choose your IQ, you don't choose where in the world you were born. I mean, not to take away from anyone who's built anything of value, but but there's still an immense amount of luck in it. I mean, is that a common thing you come across or is that kind of just the most outrageous one so it's sticking in my head as something that comes up? Yeah, look, it's something I definitely come across and the inverse is actually the top reported motivation for our community for the reason that they give is the recognition of the luck that they have that not only is it kind of undeserved and maybe like they might take it as an obligation to help others but there's also this huge opportunity when you think about that luck so we live in a really weird time in history where we have a huge population of humans that are actually really quite connected. And throughout most of human history, you may have been able to affect the lives of those in your immediate vicinity and responsible for what's happening to the lives of those in your immediate vicinity. But we now have interconnected supply chains. We have money that is incredibly fungible. A dollar spent here could be spent there. So if you're someone who's like median income in Australia or the US, you're in the top, you know, at least 5%, if not 1% uh, of the world's richest people. And that money uh, can go so far. And so just purely by being lucky, not only is there you know, maybe some arguments for having a responsibility to share that luck, but there's also this just huge opportunity. Like if if you imagine, if you were walking home tonight and you saw someone kind of tripped onto the road and you'll be able to like run in and grab them before a car, you know, ran them over in the middle of the night, you know, it was dark and they wouldn't have seen them, you know, you would feel just incredible that you had saved someone's life and that you had this opportunity and you acted on it. And the inverse would be, you know, <laughs> terrible if you just walked by and then you saw that happen, you would never live with, be able to, you know, live with yourself. But we actually have these opportunities to be saving lives on a kind of you know, regular basis, and we can do that through charity. And, and that is an incredible privilege to have that opportunity. I more recently reread A Life You Can Save by Peter Singer. He's, he's come out with a new edition, and it's a great book. It talks about the morality of giving, and it draws this picture where I'm um, saying that you're lucky enough to be in Australia earning 100 grand a year, working really hard. For you to give a grand up is probably not going to change your life in any meaningful way. Um, you won't miss that $1,000 pre-tax, which is you know, roughly $600 after tax. But to a farmer in sub-Saharan Africa or India, who's, that $1,000 might double their annual income per annum, which means that might mean their child gets three meals a day instead of one. And so you're in this position where it doesn't cost you much, if anything, in your life to radically change someone else's. And that's an incredibly lucky position to be, but it's also an incredibly extreme philosophy to take because where do you draw the line? It's very extreme, that way of thinking. And so I think, yeah, it can, it can backfire when people hear that because they kind of shut off to it. They say, oh, that's that's insane. Where do you draw the line? It's, why is it wrong for me to spend my money on my things? Like, mm. What are your thoughts on that? A lot of people do buy that you know, thought experiment that we do have this huge... Uh, opportunity, but maybe even an obligation to help others. But where do you draw the line is the immediate question. It's like, it's pretty demanding. And so 
the answer to that is you draw the line at an amount that is meaningful because you really cannot do the most good if you immediately burn out because you kind of go, well, I'm going to give everything and then you know, be destitute myself and then stop immediately because like, that was I can't do that. It's just unsustainable. So trying to find an amount that is sustainable and that's an amount that's like culturally accepted. So we generally recommend 10% for those who have means and at least 1% for those who are kind of on the route. Uh, so we're trying to really create a culture around setting and giving budget and going, this is how much I'm going to give, and then try to keep beating your personal best, see it as something you might want to kind of increase over time, and many people do, but not let uh, kind of staring in the face of potential, you know, slippery slope being a reason to not give. And to kind of give, to just pick that first amount that you're going to work with, if it's like 1% of your income or whatever it is, an amount that's meaningful and sustainable really kind of gets you past that barrier of, oh, where would I stop? Well, you stop where you decide to stop, but deciding to start is really part of, you know, the battle. And, and that is such like that moment when a lot of people go, ah, I can act. I, I feel like I can actually have some sensible path forward because I do care about this and I do want to see the world a lot better than it is. And I know I have this huge opportunity and now I have a framework to work within. Yeah, awesome. To pull it back from the, you know, how much we should give to more the, I think what a lot of people relate to, which is how do I give effectively? I have a full-time life, a full-time job, a full-time family to look after. I, I don't have the time to, and I don't know where to start in terms of researching what is an effective charity to give to as to what might be very inefficient. So what's your advice for people in that space? Yeah, so the, the complicated answer is incredibly complicated. <laughs> um, and that is, you know, basically learn how to do charity evaluation and become a charity evaluator and you, you devote your time to that. And none of us, very few of us have the time and energy to do that. So the easy answer is there are a number of organizations who do really good work in doing charity evaluation. So they do the due diligence for you and they do incredible work at trying to find how do you get the most impact for the money that you're spending? And you might say that what I want is years of life saved, or what I want is years of education, or some kind of measure of impact, and then trying to find which organizations are best able to provide that impact for the lowest cost. And that way, you can really get that huge increase in your impact in the world. And you know, as I said before, like deciding how much to give, that can be a big question. And most of us could maybe at best give 10 times more than we're currently giving, unless we're giving nothing, you can give infinitely more. <laughs> um, but you know, most of us could give easily 10 to 100 times more effectively. And that is just this huge difference in charity effectiveness, because it's not an efficient market. Like if, if you're going to buy you know, a coffee and one costs $4 and another one costs $4,000, you would notice that <laughs> because, you know, you would go, there's no way I'm spending that. But because we've got this disconnect between who the donor is and who the beneficiary is, there is no strong price signal of like how costly certain ways of helping are compared to others. And that's why you need to have this kind of middle step of evaluation that makes a huge difference in understanding what the impact of, you know, the intervention is. Uh, that's a great point. And I think tangible examples really help people understand this because when I first heard this, I was like, huh? But the idea is that um, if you care about a specific cause area, say it's animal welfare, 
and you care about saving animals from cruelty, then there's a couple of different ways you can approach that. And one might be to fund your local animal shelter, or another one might be to take on battery farming of chickens or you know, farming of pigs or something where a lot of animal suffering happens, if that's your cause area. I'm not trying to tell people that, you know, eating meat's inherently wrong or anything like that. But but on that, the difference between donating to your local animal shelter that takes strays, beautiful cause, doing lovely things, but it's not 50% as effective as taking on battery farms. It's a fraction. Battery farms are 100 times more effective in terms of reducing animal suffering and saving animal lives. And so the idea there is that um, different charities are not 50% more effective, but hundreds of times more effective in whether it's stopping domestic violence or animal um, welfare or environmental causes. And there's these think tanks out there that exist to try and solve those problems and recommend to you no matter what, you know, based on your values and what you care about, what the most effective way is to fund. And often our intuitive emotional drive to what feels good is far from creating the most impact. And so, yeah, giving what we can, what I love about your site is you you really guide people towards whatever they care most about and the resources they can read on how to be effective in that space. And in an afternoon, you can become a lot more knowledgeable on what you apparently care so much about, <laughs> which was my experience. I'm like, yeah, I really care about education. And then I dabbled on your website and I kind of realized, oh, wow, if I really care about it, why don't I spend a, a Sunday afternoon reading these awesome resources that really summarize where we're up to in the world in terms of evaluating these things? It's not like months of becoming an expert. Yeah. And the thing is, the world is complex. The world is really complicated. <laughs> and there are a lot of really great ideas. And you, you and I have you know, both been amongst things like startups, and most startups fail. And similarly, you know, most ideas aren't going to succeed in the world. But you know, with you know businesses, you know if it's failing because like the customers aren't buying it, and you'll just stop getting money. You'll stop getting investment. You'll stop getting customers. But if you don't have that strong signal to is this really worthwhile? There's no kind of default ways that charities cease to exist. So long as they've got donors, it doesn't matter how much it's helping the beneficiaries. Um, and yeah, it comes back to, as we were saying before, what is it that you value? And that's often the first question. And and sometimes we don't even realize what it is that we value. I, I have this conversation with people a lot about the environment. And I went through this myself where I care a lot about environmental causes, but I just kind of would say, oh, I care about the environment. And I'm like, what do I actually mean by that? And then I was like, well, I care about the fact that this, the environment is the home for humans and animals and everything like that. And so what I really care about is things like having good ecosystems that are supportive of life and things like that. I was like, well, what, what about species? Do I care about the number of species or is extinction bad because it's like the end of a line or is it bad because it you know causes um, suffering? And kind of, you have these really deep questions about what it is that you actually value. And once you know what that is, finding the best things for that is going to look different uh, for different people because we have different values. But there are some kind of clusters of worldviews that when you really uh, get down to it, a lot of the time it comes down to some form of consequence. And often that is 
affecting the lives of some beings that are experiencing the world. And so if it's humans alive today that you care about, well, you just get get so much more bang for your buck by helping people in lower income countries. And if you're trying to help people in your own country, often it's things like they're going to be really neglected, like mental health. And that's due to things like stigma or you know, populations which don't have as much ability to speak for themselves, be refugees or you know, minority segments of the population. You know, there are these kind of segments where you can find just these incredible opportunities. And again, if you saying before, if you care about animals, often if if you don't if you don't care just about domestic animals that you know in your house, if you just care about animals and the experiences that animals have as well as humans, one of the biggest travesties is factory farming. Just in particular, chickens and pigs. Pigs in particular, you look at them and they're so, so similar to humans. They're incredibly social animals. They're really smart and they have some of the worst conditions. And it's often not actually that expensive to change. And there are like parts to change. And it doesn't require everyone going vegan. <laughs> is there any evidence out there? Because I haven't read much on that topic. That like, is it like a massive cost burden on the farmer? Because I can appreciate their perspective there. They're having to compete on it national scale um or are you saying that it's actually not that much of a cost impediment? It's really not. And even then, it's often passed into the consumer. And again, re recognizing how wealthy we are, we can often afford it. Um, and so, you know, recently there was a win, I think, in France that it cost about one cent per dozen eggs to stop torturing male chicks. <laughs> so to so what would happen is they would wait until the chicks are a few weeks old and then be able to uh, figure out what sex they are. And if they're male, then they would put them through a crushing machine is the kind of cheapest way of killing. It was pretty horrific stuff. Whereas it costs about one cent per dozen eggs to pre-screen the eggs so that they are never born. Um, and so you're just not creating a being which can have suffering. And it's about one cent per dozen. And it's just a legislative change. And that came from highly effective advocacy organizations, organizations like the Humane League and stuff that are doing work in this area that just can have re repeatable successes. That's such a good case study because it's not saying don't eat e eggs or chickens. So it's not a, it's not asking people to be values conscious on that front or, you know, people have different views. And it's um, also not for forcing farmers out of business because if it's a legislative rule, everyone has to do it. And so it just gets borne by the consumer and it's immaterial. That's brilliant. Thanks for sharing that example. I mean, so what's next for giving what we can in Australia specifically and New Zealand where our audiences are? What are you trying to achieve right now? So I got a few things uh, coming up. One is actually uh, Humanitics is the ticketing provider for uh, Peter Singer, one of our founding members, his speaking tour, which unfortunately has been pushed in Sydney due to the pandemic, but we'll find a date for that. But giving what we can is one of the major sponsors there. We're really hoping to get uh, a good showing of people along there and hoping that you know, that'll be a way that people can discover the ideas of effective giving as well and want to if they want to join an effective giving community, we're right here for them. Yeah, we'll link to these events as well. Yeah, yeah. Many of our members in Australia donate via Effective Altruism Australia, which I'm on the board of as well. And we had our biggest year ever. We moved, I think it was about $4.2 million, $4 million to highly effective charities. And uh, yeah, that was such a such a you know, promising thing to see, especially given the context of COVID in 2020, 2021, and that people were really putting their hands into their pockets and being generous and wanting that to help as many people as possible. Oh, amazing.
Amazing. I um, recently read something that surprised me. Daniel Petrie, who was um, he's very well known in the technology sector in Australia, he, he ran Microsoft in Australia and reported directly into Bill Gates for a while. And now he is one of the most successful venture capital investors in the country, also a major philanthropist. And he did a study a while back that showed the average super wealthy Australian gives about 4% a year of their income to to philanthropy, where the average American in the same situation is giving 16%. It's a 400% higher level, which kind of saddened me because I, um, at face value, I thought Australians are very charitable, but it turns out on the stats, we're, we're probably not. And there might be mistakes in the research, but it looked pretty good to me. But you're really keen to get your view on, on that, whether you think it's a cultural thing or a legislative thing with respect to tax Oh, yeah. What do you think of yeah, that? Yeah, there's a few things in that. So America is generally overrepresented in charitable statistics for two reasons. One, I you know, believe when you actually really look at the data, they do have a stronger giving culture and they just celebrate people giving more. Whereas in Australia, it's, you know, things like tall poppy syndrome are a problem where we don't want to talk about the fact that we give and therefore people just assume that people aren't giving. And so therefore we do what others do. And if we see that no one else gives, we think, well, why should I give? Yeah. And then, so this kind of like spiral effect of by not talking about giving, we reduce the amount of giving. Uh, but in fairness, there is also some degree where in the US, the criteria of charity is a lot broader. So if you're looking at what people are putting uh, kind of on their tax return and the kind of charitable sector, that includes things like many schools and hospitals and uh, a lot broader range of cause areas, including research and, and uh, you know, environmental animal welfare and stuff like that, that doesn't get the same charitable status in Australia. So and there's also a lot more religious giving in the US as well. So if you start to like narrow down to look at just, you know, similar sets of data, the, the gap isn't quite as big, but it is still smaller in Australia. And I think as a country as well off as we are, and as much, and we talk the talk about, you know, giving everyone a fair go, you know, I think if we put our money where our mouth is, you know, we could really be leaders in that as well. As we've shown to be leaders in many things throughout the history of our nation, you know, really early on, um, first country in the world where women could be a member of parliament and first country in the world that women could vote. Like we, you know, we've got some tragic things on our record as well. No, no doubt about that. But, you know, we're really early in a lot of things, but we're lagging in giving. And unfortunately, giving is on decline in general. And I don't like to talk too much about it because I'll push people towards the, you know, the norm of giving being seen as something that other people are doing. But the fact of the matter is, the more we don't talk about giving, the more we, we kind of focus on our own, you know, kind of selfish needs and like focusing on thinking that spending money on that, you know, that next nice thing will make us happy when all the data shows that pro-social spending has the highest return on investment once you're kind of middle income, you know, spending money on others, whether it be people around you or, you know, giving to charity and things like that. That's the best value for your dollar if you're talking about Sorry, do you happiness. mean in terms of like your own, yeah, your own happiness? So like one, once you've got your hierarchy of needs covered, it's, yeah, it's more fun than another five-star holiday you're saying. If you can save three people's lives, like that's going to give you yeah. more happiness instead. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's to the point where it's logarithmic. So, how do they work that out? Like, what, what's the? Yeah, not so to sound skeptical, but and I, I hope it's true. But like, yeah, how concrete is that? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. 
So there's two things. One is that they do kind of uh, sampling of, so it's kind of been research on pro-social spending. So you're how satisfied with you with, you know, spending money on kind of different categories of items and looking at, so that's one version. Another one is uh, self-reported, you know, what budgets and then self-reported happiness levels. And so that's kind of like on the pro-social spending side of things. And then on the other side of things is the income side of things. I have I'm not aware of one study which looks directly at income after charitable giving, but income has really diminishing returns on happiness. In fact, people's happiness only goes up if they value money itself. So if you say money is important to you and you, your happiness goes up with money, uh, like it's kind of, it is it's correlated, but even then it's correlated to fractions of a percent. So the, and it's, it's a logarithmic scale. So if you're earning a hundred thousand dollars, you would need to earn $200,000 to get the same benefit of someone going from $10,000 to $20,000. So you going from $100,000 to $200,000 could fund 10 people going from $10,000 to $20,000 and getting the same difference in happiness. So you could literally get 10 times as much happiness if you gave it to someone earning one-tenth the amount. You get 100 times as much happiness in the universe if you give it to people earning one-hundredth of the amount, and that's kind of the logarithmic side. And in fact, the lower income has a much... It's not quite logarithmic yet, so you get even more than the, the doubling effect. So... Yeah, it's just an incredible world that we live in. Yeah, it makes sense if you if you can go from one meal to three meals with one step up in your income. That's that's a lot of it. That's more than doubling in your happiness, yeah. I imagine. Whereas, like, how many like you think about the marginal kind of value that you get from things. So, like, if you go from having no mattress to one mattress. That's amazing. If you go from having one mattress to two mattresses, what do you do with the second mattress? Like you can maybe get like a nicer mattress and then eventually it just, it just tapers off. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's actually quite intuitive when you think of it like that. Like once you're going from 100 million to 200 million, it's, it's not going to make a difference to what you do tomorrow. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you. Thanks, Luke. That's been a really interesting conversation and I wish you the best with giving what we can and I hope some people listening to this are inspired to go to your side and learn a bit more about the world of giving because it's 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 just damn interesting even if you're not going to change your own behavior that's that's totally fine yeah thank you so much yeah thank you really appreciate uh you having me and love the work that humanitics is doing as well i really like love how you're using the same lens that we have is how important leverage it is and if you can get multiple times your money and have this much bigger impact than you would otherwise you're really onto something and so yeah i really appreciate uh you having me on Thanks for lending me your ears for the duration of this episode. I hope you found it to be insightful. Coming up soon, we'll be interviewing the renowned psychologist, Joshua Green, co-founder of Giving Multiplier and author of the book, Moral Tribes. Make sure you're subscribed if you want to be notified. In the meantime, you can find the show notes on our blog and video highlights on our social media and YouTube channel. Find links to these and more on givingwhatwecan.org, where you can also learn about effective giving and join our community of compassionate people. Until next time, keep on doing good.